0: The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narconon Ojai. Hello, and welcome to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I'm the host for this podcast. And this is episode number 198. When a person is addicted to drugs and or alcohol, the myriad of choices of treatment can be Overwhelming. Narcanon, Ohio is a residential facility that addresses the physical, mental, and spiritual aspects of addiction with a proven, holistic, drug-free, evidence-based, step-by-step program designed to free those trapped by addiction. For more information, call 866-231-5924. Today we're going to be talking to a lady named Charlotte, bismuth charlotte bismuth started her career at the new york city department of parks and recreation before joining the new york city civilian complaint review board having discovered a love for the law charlotte attended columbia law school where she got her law degree and joined Debevoys and plimpton as a litigation associate before returning to public service She joined the New York County District Attorney's Office in 2008 as an appellate attorney. In 2010, she transferred into the Office of the Special Narcotics Prosecutor, which prosecutes felony narcotics crimes within the city's five boroughs. She then helped prosecute a pill pusher named Dr. Lee. And her book, Bad Medicine, Catching New York's Deadliest Pill Pusher, was just published and is available on Amazon. She lives in New York City with her husband and her children. A percentage of the proceeds from the book, Bad Medicine, will be donated to the Fed Up Coalition. Let's talk to Charlotte Bismuth. Charlotte Bismuth, am I saying your name correctly?
1: You are. Thank you.
0: Awesome, well, thank you so much for telling your story today on the podcast. Yours is different than any other story and I cannot wait to share it with our audience. I know they're gonna be very interested.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Absolutely. So when I typically start these interviews, I'm talking to someone who's a recovered addict and so I ask how did they get started with drugs, but that doesn't apply to you. So I think what I would wanna know from you is How did you get started with the law? Um,
1: I grew up in France. So uh, coming to the U.S., I think, especially as a teenager, I discovered, um, you know, uh, the culture of sort of drinking and recreational drugs that was very different and sort of foreign to me. And uh, I think I was always very affected by... Um, the stories of people who were getting hurt. And that's why I wanted to be a prosecutor. So,
0: Interesting. So so you became a lawyer and you were in private practice for a bit. So tell us how your career then progressed from there. Sure. Uh, I actually applied to the DA's office
1: coming out of law school and they did not accept me at the time, which was heartbreaking, but you know, that's life. Um, so I went into private practice and I actually worked for Debevoise and Plimpton, which I later learned had been representing, um, a part of the Sackler family. So that has turned out to be a very interesting twist. I never worked on that case, obviously. Um, but I was there for four years and, you know, I learned a lot there that I have since applied not just to the Dr. Lee case, but that I'm applying now to the Purdue bankruptcy and fighting for accountability with the Sacklers. So it's, uh, I feel like I'm putting my education to good use.
0: Wow. So you were working for a firm that was defending the Sacklers or at least an aspect of what, of their family. That is what I learned. Um,
1: when I was at the DA's office and, uh, actually, when I was writing the book, I realized that one of the partners of my firm had been um, the attorney for a part of the Sackler family. And that was something that was, you know, very, very hard, obviously, to accept, because the law firms uh, really build themselves as having, you know, very solid ethical practices. And they say that they, you know, they will say no to clients. And, um, you know, it was a powerful disillusionment to realize that you can, you know, they can do all the pro bono work that they want to, but if they're out there defending the interests of people who are really escaping accountability, who should, you know, um, who should be helped to a reckoning. I mean, that's just, it's not something that I think uh, is appropriate or that I can live with.
0: Right. I definitely agree with you and I can see how that would, yeah. Yeah that would not be comfortable, not for someone who obviously is of the frame of mind that you are. So how did you then, how did the whole thing with Dr. Lee, how did that come about? Where were you working then and how did that come about?
1: So after a few years at the DA's office um, in the appellate division where I defended convictions I asked for transfer to special narcotics, and um, I always felt, uh, you know, I felt sort of very protective of New York City neighborhoods, and um, I felt uh, strongly about, um, you know, people being harmed. And at the time, I think, you know, I had a conception of the work in narcotics that was very different than what I do now. Um So I I got there, and as it turned out, the work that really corresponded to my background and my skill set and also my passion was to pursue those who had the education and privilege to take advantage of the system. So the Dr. Lee case started with a tip. And it started with a tip that there was a doctor in Queens who was selling prescriptions to kids who didn't need them. And at first, you know, it raised a lot of questions because doctors write prescriptions. That's what they do. It was a stretch sort of from the beginning to imagine that that could be a crime. So the first question was really, well, why are they coming to us? But then I thought, you know, as I started looking into it and learning a bit more about his so-called practice, How despicable is it that a man who has, you know, an excellent medical education, he actually had another full-time job, he made quite a bit of money, Um, his patients trusted him, their families trusted him, the DEA trusted him, he had a license, Uh, the professional oversight board had let him, you know, retain his license, despite a number of complaints. How could he betray the entire community that was relying on him. And he really did. You know, he, um, he charged according to the pill. He charged according to the number of prescriptions. He knew that his patients were taking more than prescribed. He knew that some of them wanted to end their lives. He knew how much pain they were in and he uh, took advantage of it. Uh, We discovered 16 overdose deaths. And I think, you know, I I mean, from, especially from having heard some of your other episodes, I know a lot of your listeners will feel like I do, which is that, uh, you know, we see all the statistics, but every one of those numbers is an entire universe, right? One is too
0: many and 16 is unbelievable. It was just one is all it should take, you know?
1: Yeah. And, but, you know, for, and he knew, he knew that some of them had died and he didn't change anything. And it was, you know, it was, devastating to us as a team to be working on it and to wonder every day, like, how is this possible? Why doesn't he change? Why doesn't he stop? And of course, it was always about the money.
0: That's right. That's right. It's sad to say, but it's, you're right. It's all about the money. What neighborhood was he in Charlotte?
1: His pain management clinic was in Flushing, um, which is a neighborhood in Queens, probably about 40 minutes from Manhattan but what's interesting is that um, he opened the practice in 2004 and at the time he served primarily elderly Chinese patients that that neighborhood is sort of um, it's sort of like a uh, you know there are a lot of Asian businesses a lot
0: of um, like a Chinatown almost. Yeah, but it's sort, of, it's sort of
1: bigger and sort of more centralized. It's a wonderful neighborhood. And um, he set up there to practice pain management for the elderly. And those were the patients he had in the beginning. What's fascinating, though, is that with those patients, he didn't sell prescriptions. He mostly gave injections, but he committed insurance fraud. So even when we looked back to those very, very early days of the practice, we were not seeing a doctor who was practicing ethically or solely for the benefit of his patients. There was always an angle to it. And it was over the course of our investigation, you know, we realized that sometime around 2007, 2008, he began seeing a different group of patients who were much younger um, his first patients had some chronic pain, you know, real difficult chronic pain issues. And, uh, gradually his practice grew by word of mouth by 2009, 2010, he was seeing, he was open one day a weekend, but on that one day of weekend, he would see anywhere from 60 to 80, often a hundred. And on a few occasions, more than a hundred patients a day. And he charged, um, in the beginning, it was $100 cash for a prescription. It then went up to $150, and he would charge an extra $50 if uh, you wanted more than a certain number of pills, more than a certain number of prescriptions, if you had come too early, so more than once a month, or if there were any other risk factors in your record, like you were seeing other doctors. So he was aware of all the warning signs, but he made money from them. He monetized them.
0: He just charged more. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Did you, have, um, did you have parents and people who came to you whose children had been affected by this?
1: We actually went to them because, um, and I, I think that was really one of the most eye-opening and infuriating parts of this, was that we realized that there were so many families out there who not only were on their own and felt alone, but who also felt like they had done something wrong or they hadn't done enough, you know, and that if only they had done this or called this person or spent more money or, you know, had tough love or, you know, or so many ifs um, that something different would have happened. And what they didn't know is that it wasn't up to them, that there was a bigger force out there driven by greed who you know had sort of set the course. Um, so the way it worked was that as a prosecutor, um, I don't do the field investigation. I did um I did whatever investigations I could from my office. So I did a lot of background research. I reviewed prescription records. I sent subpoenas. Um, I tried to figure out how we could set up an overdose alert system because I wanted to know if any of his patients ended up, you know, um At the medical examiner's office, I wanted to know as soon as it happened. Um, And my partner, Joe, who was a veteran uh, homicide detective from the NYPD, he was out there really gumshoeing his way through the boroughs. And he would go, um, you know, we would get a name. Somebody would say, you know, give us a first name. I heard this young man overdosed. I don't know where he lives. And Joe would try to track down the family. And he would show up at their door. You know, sometimes people wanted to talk, sometimes they didn't. Joe is very, very respectful and, you know, also just a very, very um, good and straightforward person. So I think he was able to build rapport. And when they understood that there might be more to the story than just a quote-unquote accident that had been written off by the police as not worth looking into, many of the families agreed to talk to us. And that's where we started. Um, You know, and we also found many of Dr. Lee's patients. And I think the, you know, the journey there for all of us was that I worked at the office of the special narcotics prosecutor and Joe was a police officer and a lot of Dr. Lee's patients you know, may have been um, suspicious of our intentions or may have had reasons to have difficulty trusting us. We understood that. We also had to be very upfront with them that what we were asking them to do was not easy. It would mean, you know, it would mean uh, testifying. It would mean testifying truthfully about everything. And uh, we were, you know, we were proud to be working with them to take down somebody who we felt was really betraying the system and profiting from the suffering of others. But we were asking them for a lot and, um, they taught me about courage in a way that I think I had never understood it before. And that was really, you know, I developed very close bonds with not just some of the families, but some of the survivors and, you know, patients who, um, were willing to come forward to save other lives.
0: Wow. Was there anything that surprised you about this whole investigation more than something else?
1: You know, I was about to say everything until you said more than something else. I
0: I get that, yeah. I
1: think the, I, had heard before about the um, concept of stigma and how painful it could be. What I had never understood was the extent to which stigma prevents you from seeing people as human beings. Because in this case I met everybody as a human being and people who on paper had had very complicated lives who, you know, were were not always at peace in their own heart or in their own mind who may even had, you know, um, histories uh, with law enforcement that they thought, you know, nobody knew how that would affect their testimony or their cross examination. Um, And I understood how society makes it so difficult to engage on really a human level with what people are doing now with what they want to be doing with what they know they're capable of um and you know on the flip side of that a doctor who is sort of automatically entitled to a certain status and trust and you know um credibility and uh you know, sort of a favorable bias, the extent to which he could take advantage of that and, you know, lead to the deaths of others, but make us work so much harder in just, just to overcome that hurdle of we're prosecuting a doctor, right? Um, That was shocking to so many people. And he was committing a crime and he was committing a heinous crime, And ultimately, a jury convicted him of two counts of homicide. Um, You know, he was a killer. And there was just such a high bar, you know, and there should be a high bar for everybody. Right. But it was that that was really painful. I,
0: you know, I, I can appreciate what you're saying, because when Steve and I started this podcast back in 2017, we didn't. We knew there was an addiction problem that was all we knew we had no real insight into what it meant and after interviewing you know young people who started on drugs when they were 12 these are not you know dirty homeless people under the bridge these are not people who deserve any less compassion or understanding than anyone and the the stigma, it comes up so often, you know, people who've gone to jail for, you know, drug related crime, okay. And now they're clean and they're in recovery and they're trying to help others, but people still sometimes have, you know, have a stigma there. So then you look at this doctor and the doctor's the good guy, right? Mm -hmm. He's supposed to be the good guy. He's the one who knows. I know that my parents, who passed away a few years ago, you know, who came up through the you know, 60s and 70s, the doctor knew best. When they were senior citizens and they were in assisted living, it's like if the doctor said to do this, they would do it. And I told them, I said, you have to question the doctor. You can't just blithely take medications without questioning it because people just assume that the doctor knows best. Right. And that's just not the case. So you, I think you said you, there were 16 deaths that as far as you can tell were documented, but he was, he was actually convicted of two.
1: He was. And, you know, documented is, um, I think a reflection of the extraordinary work that Joe and the other investigators did because, um, we, uh, you know, what we had to do was follow rumors of overdoses, find the people. And then we obtained the autopsy reports from the medical examiner's office. We examined them. We tried to determine, you know, which substances were involved, but also how long ago they had last seen Dr. Lee. So we identified, we connected 16 of his patients, um, you know, 16 of his deceased patients to him. And then we went through a filtering process. And it was hard because, you know, in all the cases we knew that he had been a link in the chain and in some cases an essential link, but under the law in New York, New York state, we had to prove, um, you know, we had to meet a very high burden for reckless manslaughter, which was that he was aware of a substantial risk and he consciously disregarded it. Additionally, um, we, uh, you know, we wanted to make sure that we were in a zone where a jury would understand that even though Dr. Lee had not handed them the pills, that there was still such a tight connection. So we decided that um, they, you know, we, we sort of, the two cases that we prosecuted, the two young men had died within, within three days of their last visit to Dr. Lee, um, you know, and probably succumbed a little earlier than that. It's just, that's when they were found. So, We could really show that there was the visit, there was filling the prescription, and then there was the overdose, and they had overdosed on the substances that he had prescribed to them. Um, So, you know, there was a, it was sort of a learning curve at the same time, because never before in New York State had a physician been, you know, charged by a grand jury, let alone tried or convicted for homicide, um, and there were, um, you know, there were other charges available to us like criminal, criminally negligent homicide, but it wasn't appropriate because criminally negligent homicide, um, you know, doesn't require that knowledge. And he there was no getting around the fact that he hadn't the knowledge. And we also felt that like they, it was so important to show that he was abusing the system, betraying a trust, making a conscious decision to value money over a human
0: life right, I would imagine at least I would hope that the other four the families of the other fourteen understood that when you go into the courtroom, you have to fight the battles you can win and and while those fourteen are no less a crime than the two he was convicted for, if you can't convict him of any of them then he goes free. So if you take those two that you can absolutely convict him of. Yeah, well, you understand what I mean.
1: I do. And, you know, that's a tough call. I I would also say that we went into it telling them we might not be able. You know, we can't guarantee an outcome here, Um, not just because it's a tough case, it's a new case. But, um, you know, understandably, we were concerned that juries would, um, you know, if a patient says that they're in pain and a doctor has a license and can write these prescriptions, then, um, you know, we, we didn't know how a jury would respond to that. And that's why we felt it was, we knew it was important to set his greed front and center because it explained so much, but for those other families, um, not only did they understand, I think, um, you know, for every single one of those individuals, we conducted as full an investigation as we could. We tried to, you know, and there's a lot I can't say here because of grand jury secrecy for the ones that we didn't pursue. But, um, you know, we tried to provide them with as many answers as we could. We explained our reasoning, we met with them. Um, and in a couple of those cases, even though we couldn't charge homicide, we brought other charges. So we brought um, charges of illegal sales of prescriptions or reckless endangerment and in fact for three patients we charge Dr. Lee uh, with reckless endangerment in the first degree which is one of those New York State uh, crimes that is incredibly incredibly hard to prove because you have to prove a depraved indifference to human life and there are very very few cases that have uh, met the standard set by the courts. But here, in three instances, we could show that Dr. Lee knew that his patients were really in extreme conditions and that he was the tipping point between them surviving or not surviving. And he took, as always, the path of profit. Um, And the jury convicted him of all three of those counts. So we really, you know, what we did was that we tried with the the investigation and the charges that we propose, we tried to capture all of his conduct from the insurance fraud to the false documents, to the reckless endangerment, to the sales, to the homicides, because we wanted to show that um, the extent, first of all, we wanted to show the extent of the corruption. We wanted him to know that he would be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. We thought it was important to send that message to you know, any doctors out there who might be tempted. And we felt like, you know, the the victims deserved justice. They deserved to know that, you know, each one of those prescriptions harmed someone. It wasn't just if they died. I know right. that, you know, I heard so many family members tell me, um, you know, I could tell when, you know, my father or my brother or my son had taken the pills because I could see their eyes changing. I could see you know, their complexion changing, um, the way that they spoke, we saw, you know, one, one young woman actually made a videotape of her brother one night, because she wanted him to see what she was seeing. And she wanted to show him how worried she was about him. And so she recorded him as he was eating a pizza, and he had recently taken his pills. And we saw that video. And it was devastating, because you could see, you know, I could see the brother that she had described, but it was as though he was in slow motion and, you know, burdened down and in pain. Um, And we showed it to the jury. And I think they, you know, it really allowed them to understand. So each one of those prescriptions was a crime. It hurt someone. Um, And we wanted to send that message that he could not get away with it.
0: Well, very, very, very well done on the work that you did, because it sounds like you definitely sent that message. And we need one of you in every state, in every major city doing the same thing, but hopefully there are other attorneys who are learning from you. So what happened to him? What was the result of the whole thing?
1: I I will tell you, but first I should say, it wasn't just me. I, know. I, I was nothing without my team and we were, um, you know, we, and there are other people like us out there, which, um, I would, you know, I hope will come forward and talk about it. We, um, so Dr. Lee was convicted that moment when we heard the verdict was one of those moments I'll never forget. Um, in, he was convicted of, uh, the two charges of homicide and 196 other counts out of 211. So it was a significant conviction. And ultimately the judge sentenced him to a term of from 10 to 20 years in a New York state prison. So he is, he becomes eligible for parole in 2024, which um, is coming around quite soon. And, uh, you know, I think the, he was sentenced in 2014. So the longest he was cert- he would serve is another 10.
0: Okay. And not that's long you know, enough.
1: I know, I know. But you know, that's part of the reason why I think the Purdue fight right now is so important, because Dr. Lee and other physicians, and other, you know, people are sitting in prison for what they did, which was a crime. But those who launched
0: this epidemic are not. Yep. And that would bring us to the next chapter of your life. You are listening to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast, or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at com, or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or call us at 727-314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. For more information on our sponsor, Narconon Ojai, visit their website at That's narcononojai.org. That's narcononoja org or call 1-866-231-5924, that's 1-866-231-5924. Sometimes, the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment, call 1 833 918 0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to NewmanInterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one hour consultation with Bobby. So tell us what you're doing now.
1: So uh, as I was writing the book, I really wanted to make the story. um, I really wanted to make it a productive effort. I didn't want just to tell a story. I wanted to put it to work. So I um, started uh, reaching out to a group called Fed Up, which is a coalition of parent groups from across the country. Um, many parents who've lost their kids to overdoses and they're really laser focused on lobbying the federal government and they're amazing. Um, So a portion of my proceeds will go to fed up um, from the sale of the book. And I realized as I was speaking to fed up and also um, I was introduced to Nan Golden and her group Sackler pain, that there were a lot of activists out there who knew so much about the epidemic but when it came to the bankruptcy, it was there was too much jargon. Procedurally, it was so complicated that they just said, "You know what? I, we don't really we know it's important, but we're not really sure what's going on." And the one thing that I felt that I could do as a an attorney or former attorney um, is to translate from legalese into English. So I started just by um, you know, I would make these little drawings to sort of explain what's a state attorney general versus a local prosecutor versus the DOJ, and who's bringing the lawsuits, and what's the case in Ohio versus what's the bankruptcy. Um, and then as I was speaking to um, the director of Fed Up, Emily Walden, one day I realized that it, you know, would it be helpful if some of your, if I could get some of your members on the phone with a bankruptcy professor would it help? And she said yes. So we set up this conference call where um, a bankruptcy professor came in and he actually did a tutorial for parents who had lost their children to overdoses about what was going on and how it mattered and how it affected them. And it was incredibly powerful because you know, information it was so important for them to understand. Uh, you know, what the bankruptcy court could and couldn't do, that they could file a claim. Most of them, you know, either hadn't heard about the claims process or they didn't trust Purdue with that information. Um, So explaining that. And then progressively, I started working more on, um, you know, deciphering the bankruptcy for, uh, you know, for sort of a wider group of people Uh, writing letters myself to the bankruptcy court. And now um, I continue to work very closely with Nan's group and with Emily Walden and others. And we're really trying to bring attention to the, um, you know, the utter failure of accountability for the Sacklers and Purdue. You know, I know there was a big set DOJ settlement. A lot of people felt that was a victory. I do not. I think it was a slap on the wrist and um, we're really pushing as hard as we can in every venue that we can so that they are um, thoroughly investigated, that their decisions and crimes are you know, made public, that the American people understand that we make sure this never happens again, and that they are held accountable. And that should mean criminal prosecution.
0: Absolutely. And for the Sacklers, not just for oh, Purdue. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they. Uh, this is their company, and they they can't claim arms length on this one. They just can't. I mean, no. they can claim it, but they're not. They're responsible.
1: Yeah, and it's not borne out by the documents we've seen. Documents lately that show that the Sacklers, you know, could override executive decisions, controlled the company, controlled the company's direction increased sales at a time when deaths were spiking, you know, it all came from them.
0: Wonder how they sleep at night, don't you? Yeah. Okay. So if someone wanted to get involved, or if there's someone who maybe has more information on their family or their kids, or what would they do? How do they contact you? Where should they go? Um, So I started
1: actually blogging about the bankruptcy on my website which is com, And uh, I'm what I'm doing is I'm posting some of the key documents but with notes written on them to explain sort of you know what it means in very practical, straightforward terms. And I also actually made a couple of cartoons. They are animations. I saw them. Um, okay, <laughs> they're satirical. <laughs> um, you know, but I I think in more of a visual way, and I um, have met a lot of others who do too. So I'm just tr- really trying to explain sort of the me- um, what's going on, what are the issues being decided, and um, otherwise we uh, fed up is you know really leading the work there. So I I think they're a wonderful resource for anyone who wants to get involved, and more importantly for families who have lost someone or, um, you know, are afraid of losing someone, everyone at FedUp is ready to um, talk and to help and to lend a hand, and they are present all over the country. So I would really urge any of your listeners to reach out to them or look them up.
0: And it's, uh, I know it's the FedUp Coalition. I don't think it's just FedUp.com, is it? Right. It's uh, FedUp Rally, I think, is their website. Yes, I think you're right. Fed up rally. So you're not an attorney anymore. So the, I'm just trying to clarify. So the hat, if you will, that you're wearing is one of research, research to educate think, on this whole thing.
1: Yeah. And I think, um, you know, becoming an activist, which for right. a prosecutor, someone who always, you know, needed to stay sort of, um, <laughs> you know, more sort of impartial or dedicated to a greater cause of justice, I'm definitely absolutely taking a side and I am going to do everything that I can um, to spread the word. Um, You know, obviously the, you know, writing the book I think was sort of a revelation in the power of writing. I've, you know, I've been writing my whole life. And as an attorney I've written a lot, but um, I really believe that telling stories and telling each other's stories is a really important way to connect and to find comfort. So um, hopefully I'll be able to do more writing.
0: Well, I, I hope so too. And the fact that you told your story today on the podcast is huge. We agree with you. Stories are what resonate with other people. And I figure if someone listens to the podcast and listens to your story and just happens to know of a doctor who's doing the same thing, hopefully they'll take action. Or a parent who is aware of a doctor who's doing that, you know, they can reach out to attorneys. Um, if there is anyone, normally I say this off the podcast, but I'm going to say it to you now anyway, if there's anyone you know of that's involved. Um, in FedUp, or any of the groups you've been in contact with that would like to tell their story on our podcast, we are always willing to have people talk to us on Absolutely. the podcast because it's going to take the whole country to solve this pandemic. You and I can't do it. My husband and I can't do it. It's going to take all of us doing everything we can. And, you know, this is the other thing people ask me, they say, you know, why did you do the podcast? Do you have a child who's addicted? No, I don't. I don't have anybody in my family that's addicted. But it doesn't matter because as long as this addiction pandemic exists, it affects me. It affects you. It affects everyone I know. And any other viewpoint on it is sticking your head in the sand and thinking that it will go away. And it won't unless we all work on it. And I will get off my soapbox now. And I will thank you once again. If you just wanted to leave us with a final message, what would it be?
1: I, you know, as you were speaking, I was thinking, um, if we can think of other people's children as our own, I think it makes the call to action urgent, even though we may not have been directly affected. And we are lucky for that. But um, thank you so much. And I you know, I'm very appreciative of your podcast and, um, the courage of people who tell their story and have, you know, gone through very, very difficult journeys. So thank you. Thank you.
0: I hope you enjoyed the interview today. I tend to get very passionate about things like the Sackler family getting away with murder. They are 100% responsible for Purdue Pharma and everything Purdue Pharma has done. There are documents that show that they knew exactly what was going on. And yeah, so I get very passionate about that. Um, I think Charlotte's tenacity in pursuing Dr. Lee and getting him convicted was, is amazing. And the fact that she's now an activist and really helping to shed light on what's happening with Purdue and the Sacklers, I think is huge. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. We might have some more interviews along that line. And don't forget, if you need to reach out, you can find out more information about Charlotte at charlottebismuth.com. And don't forget to get her book. We'll talk again next week. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narconon Ohi. For more information on Narconon Ohi, call 866-231-5924 or visit www.narcononojai.org. Narcanon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard.